Welcome to the official first episode of Unrespectability Politics. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you all were here for the pilot, you know we are coming with the tea, we are coming with the fire. My name is Alexis, and I am here with my lovely official co-host, Andrea Newsom. Hey. Hey, girl. How you feeling, sis? Girl, stress. <laughs> <laughs> I had to say the nasty stress. It's just been a long week. Oh, my gosh. Such a long week. We have so much to talk about in this episode. In addition to two guests, y'all, this week politically was just crazy. But we're going to talk about it. We coming with that heat. We coming with that fire. So Okay. Okay, so I'm going to talk to Andrea to introduce our first guest. So, y'all, this person needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Okay, so I thought that we should start off this second episode talking about something that happened at the top of the year. I hope that you have not been so stressed out because of this week. Um, to not remember, like, weren't we just talking about us being on the brink of World War Three just a few okay. moments ago? <laughs> right, sis. Like, that was a huge moment um, through social media, people joking about deployment, which I didn't really appreciate it. Um, mm-hmm. But this person is from my hometown. He's a hometown hero. Um, no other. I present to you um, Professor Derek Smith. Professor Derek Smith teaches at North Carolina A&T. Can I get an Aggie price? Aggie price. <laughs> Shout out to the Aggies. Um, and he teaches in the uh, Gibbs Hall political science. And so I have known him, I want to say he gave me my awakening and mm. uh, political science and this work and policy. Um, I'll never forget his, my first class with him my freshman year. He worked very closely with Reverend Barber and with the repairs of the breach and the poor people's campaign. Yes, he is an activist in the community. Um, I love it when we haven't really talked for a while, but I'll see him at events speaking and doing rallies. And so he'll see me organizing. And so he's mentored me. And I think that you are in for a treat. He's about to give us the historical context on the U.S. relationship with Iran. And why that is so relevant now and how it affects uh, black and brown people, quite mm-hmm. frankly. Um, so let's get into this conversation. Let's y'all. get into it. Professor. So, um, yes, Professor Smith, feel free to say anything um, about yourself, the classes you're teaching right now, things that you're doing right now. Okay, you sounds like you pretty much summed it up. Um, <laughs> I uh, teach in at A&T. From time to time, I'll teach at uh, the Florida Extension for Faith of State. Um, and uh, I, I enjoy the profession, and I really enjoy being an activist around the state and, and throughout the nation, working with repairs of the breach and the uh, Poor People's Campaign. Um, and, um, that's about it. Okay. Awesome. So today I wanted us to talk about, uh, so just to give you all some context, short context, so I want to make sure we have enough time for us to get down to meet degree. Um, I asked Professor Smith to come speak to a group of students at Duke University about what was going on with Iran when, uh, the year started. And could you help us understand the the history in the U.S.-Iran relationship um, and why it is so contentious. And so when, um, I, I, guess, I guess we'll start off there before I go into any more of my questions. Um, but yes, so could you start us off kind of like that conversation you gave students at Duke University about the U.S.-Iran uh, relationship? Okay. Um... And uh, as I remember, it was uh, it was real 
real hot then because uh, Donald Trump uh, had ordered the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, who was uh, uh, an Iranian uh, general, uh, basically the head of the Republican Guard. Um, he uh, had been a contentious figure in international relations for quite a while um, because of his involvement during the um, uh, after the U.S. invaded Iraq uh, under President uh, George W. Bush. Um, but the story goes back much farther. And most Americans aren't really that familiar with the history behind it. Um, because uh, as you remember the recent news, um, news reports were suggesting that, uh, you know, all of this contention began in 1979 when there was a, a revolution in Iran uh, by fundamentalist Muslims who took over the country of Iran and all the countries in the West were crying foul saying you can't have a country which is created solely um, as a as a, a, a religious fundamentalist state. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so nation states shouldn't be structured like that, even though uh, 1948, the United States and Great Britain got together and created this Jewish state called Israel. Um, but, uh, but the Iran conflict pretty much goes back uh, to right around the time that the uh, CIA was created, 1947. Um, CIA was created and people were trying to figure out how it should be structured. Um, should, should it be a benign intelligence gathering agency or should it be involved in stuff like black operations, assassinations, and coups, right? Right, right. So by the time 1953 rolled around, it was obvious that they were going to be involved in all of the above, black operations, assassinations, and coups. Um, and uh, along with uh, gathering, um, you know, benign intelligence. So what uh, what happened in 1953 was they had a popularly elected government. They had just broken away or thought they had broken away from British colonial rule because Great Britain was really smashed in World War II and they weren't in a position to be anybody's colonial master at that point. Mm -hmm. but, they, but they had been the colonial master of Iran and um, and they had uh, basically stolen the oil, and um, and, right. and as, as the colonial rulers. But now Iran is a uh, uh, by 1953, um, they've broken away from uh, the colonial reigns from Great Britain. They've elected their government. They had a popularly elected uh, ruler by the name of Mohammed Mosaddegh, um, who was uh, pretty pretty moderate by um, you know most. Um, most accounts, but he wanted to nationalize the oil. He wanted the oil back. So it's our oil. Mm -hmm. You stole it from us when you, you know, were our colonial masters. The world's moving away from that. Um, the uh, the United Nations, uh, newly created United Nations, is against that. The United States is against that, and they were mm -hmm. under Harry Truman. Uh, Truman was an anti-colonial, but. Harry Truman can't stay president forever. <laughs> so around 1953, um, the, uh, uh, the Iranians had nationalized the oil and the British were crying foul. Since their military was decimated, they had to rely on the United States. And this was the first major operation for the CIA. Um, and they, uh, the CIA, uh, under the uh, leadership of uh, Kit Roosevelt, led a um, a coup, and they uh, ousted the popularly elected ruler in Iran and placed in charge a brutal dictator um, who we uh, would later know as the Shah of Iran, who was there in Iran, kicked the United States and the Shah out of power, and um, and and so that's that's where we begin to tell the story. But we we always fail to tell. The historical accounts going back to 1953, we were the scourge for Iran. They were mad at us yeah. since 1953. Yeah. And so now that relationship, um, you know, has continued to deteriorate. The best it got was under President Obama. 
with the uh, um, the Iran nuclear deal. Mm -hmm. um, but Iran, you know, they still don't trust us, and now it's it's going to be even worse now with the, um, with the Trump administration um, flipping everything that Obama had done. Right. Right. So, can you give us an account of the starting of the new year? Um, you know, you and I are both from Fayetteville, North Carolina, and we have the, one of the largest military installations um, footsteps away from our homes. And so, can you give us a, a reaccount of what actually happened in the assassination of um, Major General uh, Soleimani? Yeah. Well, this was uh, right around the time uh, during the peak moments of the uh, the impeachment. And uh, there's this there's this concept in uh, presidential politics called wag the dog, which is played out over time. Um, sometimes you'll have a, a sitting president who will be in some considerable trouble at home in the polls, or there may be a domestic crisis, which is like an albatross around his neck. And uh, unfortunately, presidents can wield all of this power and especially in foreign policy, they can get the whole country thinking about something totally different. Mm -hmm. um, so in, um, for example, in 1998-99 timeframe when Bill Clinton was being impeached, um, he, uh, he, was, he started launching cruise missiles uh, into the uh, Africa and uh, Afghanistan in an attempt uh, to uh, kill al-Qaeda, which now in hindsight probably seems like it's a good idea, but the timing was was uh, right. was suspect because it was right in the middle. And, you know, uh, traditionally, um, there, uh, uh, when it comes to uh, policy issues, foreign policy is the least um, partisan, right? It, there's a lot of bipartisan agreement in yes. foreign policy. You got hawks on both sides. Mm -hmm. So if you got a president who's in trouble domestically, um, and and they're they're trying to um, they're trying to sort of turn a political page, um, yeah. they'll just simply launch a conflict, which will uh, which which will literally change the front page of the of the Washington Post and the New York Times above the fold, right? So right. Um, yeah. So you you had this situation that uh, right in the middle of President Trump's impeachment, and during the holiday season, uh, he decides that he's going to go on an assassination mission and kill the Iranian, um, uh, one of Iran, Iran yeah, leaders, and one of the military leaders. And uh, and you, you know, I'm sure it's just a few weeks ago, and it's it's funny how things kind of work their way out of our 24-hour news cycle. But just a few weeks ago. Uh, we were uh, literally on, almost on the brink of World War III. Um, uh, Iran was saying that after, um, after that attack, that they were going to launch an attack on the on the U.S. interests, and they did. They fired these uh, ballistic missiles into uh, Iraq uh, bases where U.S. soldiers right. were. Um, yeah, and uh, and and then they then they. Uh, they issued a threat that if there was any retaliation for that, then they were going to attack Israel. They were going to um, they were going to um, send missiles to Haifa and uh, and Tel Aviv. So it it had that happen with all the other players in the region, and then bringing you know Israel into it. That that could very well have been that one war that everyone fears is supposed to start in the Middle East and spread out, right? And uh, and really, it was all just to sort of get people to stop thinking about impeachment. Hmm. So that's, that's kind of scary because it was, a, it was a really tense moment. And in fact, I don't, seems to me like it was about, about as intense as it can get. Right. Um, probably since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Well, thank you so much, Professor Smith. This has been very a very fruitful conversation. I always love to hear you speak. And so um, 
I asked you for everything. One day, I'm, I'm sure you're going to tell me no. <laughs> but we'll probably have you on on the uh, on another episode to talk about some other topics, just because I just love to hear you speak. But thank you so much for coming on. Before you go, oh. is there anything that you'd like to plug or announce? Are there anything um, students are doing or any like events that are going on um, for our listeners to be tuned in? Yes. Uh, this week at A&T is uh, Political Action Week. Yes! Um, okay. And, uh, and so there's been a, a lot of events going on. We've had several um, um, candidates' forums and things like that. And gearing up to the election, which begins real soon, on the 13th of February, yep. um, um, there's going to be a lot of mobilizing on campus, and uh, there's going to be a lot of events that the public are, are invited to. Mm -hmm. um, most of that, a lot of that has happened this week already in Political Action Week. Um, but uh, just a plug for the uh, histo historic thousands on Jones Street March and Rally. HK on the, J, I'll be there. <laughs> the People's Assembly. Um, that'll be Saturday at, uh, at the Rally Point is uh, Duke, the Duke Energy Center for Performing Arts in Raleigh. And uh, that'll be at eight o'clock, and we're expecting tens of thousands of people to show up yes. Um, yes. to talk about uh, uh, the progressive issues um, that uh, many of our coalition partners with the Poor People's Campaign and the NAACP are fighting for. Um, you know, we've still got a lot of voter suppression stuff in the uh, in the legal pipeline. You know, we're just praying that the primary goes off as scheduled yeah. and that uh yeah so there's a lot going on and uh man there's a lot to talk about we don't have to i have to come back and um yeah and always you know don't hesitate to use us as a resource to get to a broader audience so um really do appreciate you yes thank you so much so like professor said if you're in the local north carolina area you want to get Tapped in into these events, definitely attend the march. I love political science. Shout out to A&T. That was my minor. And Gibbs, that's a whole nother conversation. But right. um, thank you so much, Professor. Um, thank and we, you. Um, talking to you. And we'll put, we put, we'll put those dates in the show notes. Tomorrow. Okay, sounds great. All right, thank you so much. Thank you. And we're back. Thank you so much to everybody who has been rocking with us, listening to us. We have our next guest who I'm super excited about as well, Shireen. She is a Middle Eastern activist and organizer who is working to capacity build. And I'm just so excited to hear her uh, give her own perspective as she is a Iranian American. And you know, we normally don't get that perspective. And so I'm really excited for you to just share with us your thoughts. Um, but first, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit more about you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Alexis and Deandria, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Um, my name is Shireen, and I am an Iranian-American. I grew up in Houston, Texas. I was born there to an Iranian mother and an American father and lived for most of my life in Houston, Texas. And I always grew up with the, the question uh, that I posed to my mom and dad of why I wasn't able to go back to Iran, why I wasn't able to see my grandmother before she passed, why um, you know, we were never able to exchange letters or send money back home. And so those questions really formed my upbringing and my understanding of, of who I am. So with those questions, I ended up going to school and pursuing a Master of Public Policy and then a Master of Middle Eastern and North African Studies. And today I work in the field of Middle Eastern community organizing and immigrant rights. So it's a real pleasure to be here and to speak with you both today. Yes, thank you so much. Sounds like you have a wealth of knowledge and I'm not just saying that because we're friends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I wanted to ask you from your perspective, like you said, you are a Iranian American, you have family back in um, Iran and really just growing up with um, a different view, a different perspective, like I said, that is, is just, 
it's it's foreign to those who also are not familiar with uh, foreign policy. And so the first question I wanted to ask you is just like, what is your take? What is your perspective about U.S. and Iran relations? Um, yeah, could you just tell us a little bit about how you feel about that? Absolutely. Well, it has been a really uh, wild ride in the past month, and I'm being a little facetious. It's been a pretty awful month in terms. Of <laughs> That's oh yeah. yeah, it's been a trash month in terms of Iranian and U.S. relations. So, most yeah. of this took a turn for the worse um, a few days after New Year's, and so 2020 got off to a bad start. What happened was the um, United States really under. President Trump's direction, really even against the direction of his Pentagon officials and advisors, decided to assassinate one of the top uh, military leaders of Iran. Mm -hmm. And that was such a brazen and such a bold move. And I, I would also say an illegal one, according to international law. But that was such a brazen move that the Iranian government felt compelled to respond. And these actions really spiraled us pretty close to the brink of war. Mm -hmm. So. That was quite, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you both remember, it was just like, uh, there was a lot of reference to World War III, emotions yeah. were being really high. Yeah. Um, and that was really just in the first week of 2020. So luckily, um, there has been a slight de-escalation. There is no immediate threat of war between these two countries on the horizon. But unfortunately, relations between the two countries are still very, very poor. And the real tragedy that's felt by um, people in my community, in the Iranian-American community, is that by assassinating General Soleimani and by escalating um, the violence between and the aggression between these two countries, the United States really closed the door to peace. Mm. Yeah. I know we just did that in unison, but but I mean, like, <laughs> because that's real. Um, right. Wow. I'm sorry not to cut you off. Yeah, keep going, please. No, I mean, that's exactly <laughs> the response that I had was just like, oh my God, you know, so many people had been working toward peace for so long, not in this administration, of course, but <laughs> the previous administration. Exactly, exactly. And there were real gains, the nuclear accord. Um, there mm -hmm. were signs that we were returning to diplomacy and that families might be reunited. And over the last three or four years since the Trump administration has taken office, we are now at the brink of war and there's definitely no, no positive signs in the near future. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is just super unfortunate. Um, but as we know, like things don't exist in a vacuum, right? And so before, uh, you know, you were able to come and speak to us, we had another guest, one of our uh, prior professors, and he was just giving us the rundown of just like, um, you know, Iranian relations with the United States and like how we've kind of gotten to this point. Um, but I wanted to ask you, what do you think currently, um, is the biggest issue between you know these two entities do you feel like it stems back to historical is there some current day things it is is it this administration you know heightening things um how do you feel about that yeah that is such a good question because there is so much history between these two countries and yeah. it's sometimes difficult to know where where do you start like what what is the starting point is it 1953 when the united states uh, really executed a, a coup to overthrow the Iranians. Literally, yes, he literally, <laughs> yes, exact same language. Sorry, but yes. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So do we start at 1953? Do we start at 1979 with the Islamic Revolution and the hostage crisis? There's so many different historical flashpoints. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but I really think, and, and this is my, my two cents, just from witnessing what has been going on, you know, both in the Obama administration and then in the Trump administration, I really do feel like the Trump administration is the responsible body for what we see going on today. So it started about three years ago with yeah. the imposition of the Muslim ban. Mm. Iran yeah, I feel like people forgot about that. Mm. Right, right. Yeah. It's still in effect today too. And Iran, the Iranian government was, was offended by that action as well as were other countries included on the list. So that was really one of the first steps that the Trump administration took to move away from diplomacy. Mm -hmm. 
um, of course, there have been others. So the withdrawal of the United States government from the JCPOA, and that's the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear accords that were signed under President Obama. Mm-hmm. Can and you speak a little bit more about that? Could you give absolutely. a little bit more context? Absolutely. So under President Obama, I believe in 2016, a joint and not just joint uh, between the United States and Iran, but also European partners signed an accord stating that Iran would not develop uh, uranium for nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And okay. this was really a landmark achievement. Iran had been stating for some time that they were not doing this, but they signed to um, they signed the agreement and gave up certain rights and, and made certain concessions in order to prove to the international community and the IAEI, the International Atomic Energy Agency, that they were not actively pursuing um, any nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And it was really a step in the right direction for peace and for diplomacy because Iran agreed to have a more open, accountable system for international officials to regulate their uranium enrichment. Mm-hmm. And it meant that there was gonna be more information shared by both sides and more opportunity for for diplomacy. So that uh, unfortunately did not last. Um, The United States withdrew and the the European partners at this point have not been able to provide the necessary sanctions relief that Iran was seeking in order to maintain its side of the deal. Hmm. Yeah, so that was one. And then there's more. Uh, the, uh, the United States government also designated a pretty major Iranian military group in Iran as a terrorist organization. Mm. And so this is really uh, an aggressive move by another country to declare another country's military to be a terrorist organization. And it really paved the way for the United States to aggress Mm-hmm. upon Iran in a new way. And this also, I should say, was requested by the government of Saudi Arabia, which is an ally of the United States government. Mm. So I don't want to paint the picture, though, that Iran is, you know, as a government, as an entity, as a nation state, completely a victim in this scenario. But I will say that the Trump administration has rapidly, over the past three years, escalated the aggression between these two countries and degraded any possibilities for diplomacy to such a point where we are only, now we only have military actions or acts of aggression um, to respond to the Iranian government with, we don't have any pathways for negotiation. Mm. And that is unfortunate, very unfortunate. You said a lot there. And I'm just trying to collect my thoughts because there are just so many instances, I feel like, where, like you said, diplomacy and just like a chance to come together and really understand our history has really been depleted, (laughs) has really been taken away. Um, And even in our prior guest was just talking about even the timing of, you know, these things happening and just like calculation of this administration to take the heat off of what's happening here in this country and like, yeah, you're going through this whole impeachment trial and now you've suddenly just, you know, essentially assassinated what you are telling our country to be be perceived as like a bad person, you know? Um, And I think that that's a really important point for you to lift up is like, hey, they essentially deemed a government, a military government as a terrorist organization. And, And what would that look like if other countries were to do that to us, right? When in in a lot of instances, we move and posture very much more so, you know? So that's really interesting. Um, So I appreciate you for bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we've heard all of these things. This was a really good, um, I think, synopsis of just um, what's going on currently, how these things are related to the past. But I really want to also start looking towards the future. And so my last question for you, Shireen, is how can we, as people who um, are somewhat detached from, um, you know, Iranian history, we're obviously not Iranian Americans, how can we be better allies? How can we be better informed about foreign policy? Because this 
um, you know, is very specific to this country, but like it also touches uh, people that I care about, you know, marginalized communities, the decisions that our country makes, foreign relations very much um, will definitely, um, you know, reverberate back to the communities here. And so just any suggestions or advice on just being better allies, being more informed about foreign policy, seeing those connections. Absolutely. Thank you for asking, Alexis. And I completely agree. One of the things that I feel as an Iranian American, but also as a citizen watching everything unfold for the past few months is that so often foreign policy and, you know, other actions, but specifically foreign policies used to distract from what's happening at home and often what's happening in terms of injustices at home that yeah. are taking place against the most marginalized people of color. So I always, you know, really try to do my best to read and connect struggles that are happening both abroad and in the United States. Uh, it's also important to know that those struggles that happen abroad um, often inform how communities at home are treated. So just yeah. when we were talking about the 1953 coup against Mohammad Mossadegh that took place in Iran, mm. that actually became the blueprint for coups that the United States government took in other Latin American countries. Mm. So these connections are just so, so um, tangible, unfortunately, but they, they really are out there. In terms of keeping up to date with foreign policy, um, making us better allies and more informed citizens, I found Twitter to be a really helpful resource. Yes, Twitter! Shout out to Black Twitter because y'all really, y'all. <laughs> yeah. so I follow Black Twitter, I follow Iranian Twitter. I try to just follow the voices that you know I either want to keep up with or where I want to learn more from, which has been a real, real asset. Um, and there are also, I will say, so many Black progressive voices that are already doing this, already connecting the struggles. And so I'm just, you know, following their wonderful, wonderful example. Mm. Scholars like Angela Davis, whose mm. book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle, is just amazing. Um, I'll also shout out Mark Lamont's, Mark Lamont Hill's amazing. Yes! Yes! <laughs> I love I Mark Lamont Hill. Love him. And if he ever hears this podcast, it would be great. Like... Let's make a note to like oh, him on the show. I think Sherelle knows him. Anyway, okay, but sorry. Yes. We're not doing this. <laughs> and Shereen, like you and I have had so many conversations about just how wonderful he is um, and just his ideology, the way that he's able to connect these issues and really like articulate them in these ways. I am so... In a way you can understand. Yes. That's the reason why we have this podcast. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, Shereen. No, no, I was just kidding. I'm sorry. No, no, not at all. I think I had the real pleasure and privilege of hearing him speak in person in November. I was telling Alexis it was life changing. I had just goosebumps up and down my spine. He really just he he gets it and he communicates it, and then he challenges everyone listening to just mm -hmm. plug in and to be a better ally. Yeah. Yeah. I so appreciate it. He's also, yeah, he, he doesn't shy away from saying the hard things. I think he said some really, really important things about how Middle Eastern communities can be better allies to our Black neighbors, which was... Look, mm. listen, it's yeah. real. I had a snap to that because, I, like I said with our last speaker, I don't think people recognize that this is not just a foreign issue. This is a Black and Brown issue. Like, right. and we need to know about it. Absolutely. Hey, it is. It absolutely is. It really, really is. And so I really admire and admire the both of you for what you're doing, admire scholars and activists for uplifting that work. Um, another one is Nada Makbule. She just released a book, I guess a few years ago, called The Limits of Whiteness. So really bringing home for Iranian Americans in this country what race means, what um, mm. the historic meaning of race, the historic meaning of whiteness, how Iranians are not white, so there's a lot of really, really rich conversations that are happening mm -hmm. right now around race, around oppression, around our shared oppressions, but also the ways in which um, the United States government has oppressed certain groups to the advantage of others. So all of that is um, stuff that I try to plug into and educate myself on. Um, and those are the role models that I'm using to guide my thinking. Wow, that is so great. Um, 
Yes, to all of that. And I really like the way in which you tied in an uplifted race because at the underroot, like that is absolutely um, a thread mm -hmm. and theme. And, um, you know, I think that as we um, follow, you know, scholars like uh, Mark Lamont, as we have podcasts, as the knowledge is starting to be heightened and people understand, then we can start adding some of the more, um, the nuances, which I think is right. really important to really understanding all of this <laughs> and not right. just you know within like uh foreign relations but really like what does this mean for like domestic relations right like why am i so passionate about these things is because they're all connected mm -hmm. and i think that because of the way that america and society has postured itself um it really relies on our ignorance to those connections but like they're very important um, and so I just appreciate you and, and your work and, and your knowledge, but also your praxis, um, the way that you actually show up in these communities and, and um, show up for your own community, I think is, is really beautiful um, and something that I definitely admire about you. I think that's one of the reasons why we connect. So thank you so much for being here. <laughs> Thank you both. Thank you, Alexis. And I'm just so grateful to be a part of these conversations and so excited to see um, what the two of you do in the future. Yay! Well, Thank you. just like my professor and the current, the the previous speaker, we would love to have you on again to talk about, um, you know, any foreign policies or foreign relations that you see, you know, that are pressing. Um, because I definitely want to still include that analysis in these shows. So. I would love to do it. Hopefully under better circumstances. We'll see what 2020 brings us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Shireen. Um, anything that you want to plug or say or um, or any follows? Uplifts for our listeners. Please feel free to do um, those three, those three thinkers, Angela Davis, Mark Lamont Hill, and then Nada okay. for the Iranian American voice. Um, okay. Those are the three that I would love to uplift. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, off the top of my head. Great. Wonderful. Well, be sure to check those thinkers, those people out, and we'll definitely um, be able to plug them in some way on the show. So Thank you so much, Shireen. And I know this won't be the last time we hear from you, but yeah, thanks for being here. Thank you. Bye. Have a great night, you too. Okay. Thank you so much to our guests. We on to the State of the Union. Ready, Deandrea? Yeah. <laughs> it's been a week, man. It's been a week. So the first thing on the docket is the Iowa caucuses, which were quite simply a mess. Um, <laughs> a mess. I am really concerned, DeAndrea, about the state of our democracy right now when our Democrats can't get it together. They can't get it together. For those of you who don't know how the Iowa caucus works, it's a very old and antiquated system mm -hmm. where basically voters who are meet the criteria to be Iowa voters, which is 18 and registered in Iowa, go to a public space, whether that is a school or a gym, mm -hmm. and stand in different sides of the room in support of a candidate. And that is just inherently wrong and problematic on so many levels. Like, I just... Yeah, I'm, unequitable. Oh, unequitable. Like, what if you're in a wheelchair? What if you work? What if you got kids? Like, it starts mm -hmm. up at the clock. It's so trashy. And then on top of that, all of the different rules, like, weren't you talking about, I think we were talking earlier about the satellite precincts. Yeah. So they had um, satellite caucuses this time. This was the first time that they had an app that you could log in and uh, say that you're there and then move, I guess, to certain sides of the rooms, but just virtually. Um, and, you know, we have yet to get it together as far as trying to protect um, elections from that type of uh, technology, um, whether it's at the ballot box and now for the caucuses. Um, but one thing I do want to point out, the, the Iowa caucuses, they're also Republican and Democrat, but uh, they do it differently. But yeah, Lex, why don't, you, why don't you tell them a little bit about how it goes? 
Yeah, so I think that it's really interesting. Um, I'm not as familiar with the Republican caucus or the way that they handle yeah, it. Yeah, I do know that Trump won 95% of the votes, which isn't, which isn't, not to his credit, but to the electoral process credit, it's not unusual for an incumbent president or a president who um, is basically up for election again to actually get the support of Republicans. But in this case, it's very unfortunate because we know what this president has done. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's very disheartening that after four years and all of the things that we've seen, that Republicans are still not willing to break party lines. Um, so that's very unfortunate, but yeah, like you said, the satellite precincts were really something on top of just Iowa being a very white rural state and the fact that it's the first in the primary and as such, we use it as a predictor of how the national elections are going to go or whoever part. the candidate is just so ridiculous. <laughs> It is our laughing, our laughter is sarcastic, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Which they probably know because honestly, there are some situations where you just have to laugh, not to cry, or be very upset. At this point, I feel like it is righteous anger that we are experiencing democracy. <laughs> like, I don't understand. So they still have not declared a winner, even as we're recording. Um, the results have shown that Pete, our favorite mayor. <laughs> okay, that's not an endorsement, y'all. That's not DeAndre Wow. <laughs> but he, he has led in the votes with uh, a very close rear by Bernard Sanders. And so we'll see. Uh, the next primary is New Hampshire. So some of the momentum is kind of gone. Honestly, nobody's mm-hmm. really talking about Iowa right now. And so that's just a mess. Um, not to mention, I heard that app was developed by Clinton veterans. So I'm going to just leave that there. For I heard that too. I wasn't sure how true that was. Girl, who knows? <laughs> Except we know. <laughs> oh, we know. So it's just oh. wild. It's wild. Um, if you guys want to know more information about the Iowa caucus, we can definitely link y'all to some articles. It's a very archaic process, and I don't recommend us continue it in the future. So hopefully we can stop that and and reimagine something different, right? That's what politics really should be about is how can we get closer to our our desired democracy? That's how I feel. So that's that. Right. <laughs> on to the next. Girl, I'm dragging my feet on this one. <laughs> so obviously we have our own State of the Union and State of the Union, the reason why this segment is called that is really to describe current events, to describe what's currently going on in the space. So it is modeled after the National State of the Union, which the president does every so quarters to let citizens who pay their money, pay their taxes, vote, let them know what he has been doing as he has been bestowed this role in office. Mm -hmm. And so Donald Trump, Donald J, he gave a State of the Union the other night and I will have to say that it was probably one of the worst State of the Unions I have ever heard in my 27 years of life, which isn't that long, but you know, it's kind of long. I got a little skin in the game. <laughs> but seriously though it was so ridiculous i was really personally taken aback by just how much propaganda and exploitation this man used it's very clear that this president loves to push his own agenda and i personally was offended by the ways in which he twisted and manipulated people and their tragedies to really make it seem like his accomplishments are far greater than they are. And so I personally was not happy. I know we were texting. It was upsetting. Yeah. Let's put in a plug really quick. If you ever want to text us <laughs> during contentious moments, anything politically, more, more than likely we're watching it. Um, we will give you commentary for days. But uh, you mentioned a little bit about taking someone's tra- tra- tragedy 
-hmm. and using it for the president's own political game. One thing that I saw, Lex, that I really didn't appreciate was, you know, both of my parents were veterans. I come from a veteran area. I'm from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Uh, Dreamville. Uh, And one thing that really bothered me about the State of the Union, um, do you remember when he basically took time to reunite a soldier with his family? Although that is a very beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget the many times my dad has been to me and my sister's schools when we were younger to reunite with us from being deployed. Mm -hmm. But it was laced in misleading Mm. propaganda Mm -hmm. that, you know, I am President Trump and I did that. I don't appreciate that. That's nah (laughs) it's a no for me dog like I'm not here for it and I don't appreciate it Mm -mm. that hit too close to home excuse me I agree and I think that that is the problem with this president is that he's taking pages out of the political manipulative handbook I mean the fact that he was using like you said, these tragedies to push forward his agenda to make himself seem greater. There were so many dog whistle politics, which for politicos and people who study politics, it basically is language, coded language that can mean one thing, but it actually means another. So an example mm-hmm. of that is when he was talking about criminal aliens. And I'm I'm doing an air quote because what does that even mean in a country where people were either forced to move or moved out of fear or trying to start a better life. Like nobody is native to this land except for the indigenous people. But that's a whole nother topic. The point that's is for that. Okay. Cause my ancestors anyway, I should be in <laughs> we that's another that's another episode. <laughs> but anyway, the point is exactly criminal alien is just a word or a phrase that aligns with violence honestly it's a way for him to rally the support of his supporters and really just align with ways that are just not right that undermine people's humanity and to put those words together to use that language in that way is very violent and i think that politics have to get away the right has been doing it for a very long time sometimes liberals do it as well but there's no need for that type of rhetoric in our politics Say what you mean, do what you say you're going to do. And let's just leave it at that. I'm also tired of hearing people talk anyway. Like, let's get some action. Up in yeah, why do you like you talk it? Because we ain't got time. <laughs> Jamie, <laughs> don't walk it like you talk it. That's what I'm talking about. Exactly. Huh, okay, that's enough of that. I'm, my brain is hurting. Uh, last thing, because y'all, this is really just... This was honestly the political week from hell. I'm going to just be honest. Like, there were so many things that I was just writing my notes down. Like, we're going to have to talk about all of this stuff. Like, wow. I'm glad this episode came out. But anyway, the impeachment trial. So the last time that we were kicking it with y'all, we were in the beginning stages. They had just decided the articles. They had brought the articles. And they were deliberating on if they were going to actually hold trial. And they did. They ended up, they being the House, ended up actually convicting this man and, you know, saying that he did he did something wrong. And so after that process, it goes to the Senate. And this Wednesday, the Senate was rounding up its closing arguments, trying to decide if this man was going to be acquitted. Is he going to actually be removed from office because as we know or are learning in this process just because you are convicted and you know it is decided that you're going to be impeached does not necessarily mean that you will be removed which is another problem and sets a precedent but that's that's honestly a whole nother topic too but yeah Wednesday they let that man go (laughs) yeah I also want to add like people probably um Someone sent me a question, like, I thought the president was already impeached. So when we did the first episode, that was back in December, and he was on the House side. Um, But what that meant on the Senate side 
they had to send those articles of impeachment to the Senate side. Um, and I guess people are getting confused, like, well, wait a minute. Typically, any decision that goes to the House, when you go to, uh, when you pass a bill, it has to pass in both houses. And so it's a similar process for impeachment. But I think a lot of people are getting confused because it was so long. Mm. Um, Nancy Pelosi, the uh, House Speaker for U.S. Congress, a lot of people criticized her for waiting so long to send the articles of impeachment to the Senate. And I am not quite sure at this present moment whether that was a good decision or not a, a great decision to wait so long. But I have to hand it to her that she was trying to be at least somewhat strategic because she knew to me, look, I'm going to keep it clean. <laughs> <laughs> she knew some of the trifling folks in the Senate were going to basically just say, I don't care about your articles of impeachment. We about to acquit this man anyway. Um, Mitch McConnell has gone on the on the record saying uh. that. Um, from, for those who do not know, I've heard this man's name. Who is this man? I wouldn't know this man if I see him walking down the street. <laughs> Mitch, McConnell. <laughs> y'all, I'm on a roll. But um, yes, so Mitch McConnell, y'all, he is the Senate uh, uh, majority leader. And he basically is who Nancy Pelosi is for the House, but he's for the Senate. And um, he's like the ringleader, uh, mm -hmm. lack of better words. I'm not going to give you an antiquated definition from Webster or anything, but um, that's how you can basically understand his role. And he told, um, he told me, he told Nancy, you might as well send those articles of impeachment here now. Cause we ain't got time. We're going to quit him anyway. And I don't think that that's a, a very uh, honorable thing to say when you are one of the highest, you hold one of the highest offices in the free, free world. Like that's just not cool. Exactly. And it really, again, sets a precedent for just bad politics. Like at some point in time, both parties even though there are other parties, but whatever, both dominant parties need to come together and practice some damn bipartisanship. Like there are some things, some issues that there really isn't a stance. People should have free healthcare. Education is essential, right? Like people should right. not die because they don't have a home or enough money to pay for a home. Like those, those should not be partisan issues. And so when you have leaders who are in these offices and they're not willing to work together, they're not willing to compromise, it is trash. This is what we have, our republic going yeah. down the drain. Like it's just not, it's not it. But I also wanted to uplift one of the things that you said because that was a really good point. I think this process is also akin to, well, when we're looking at these very high profile attorney cases and we're, we're waiting and you know, obviously somebody has done something wrong, whether it be a police officer or a high official, X, Y, and Z, and everyone is waiting for an indictment, right? Indictment literally just means that you're gonna get a trial. It doesn't mean that you're gonna be convicted. And so in this case, mm -hmm. it's very close and similar just because you're impeached, which would be in the indictment, does not mean that you would be convicted which would be the removal. So I think that was a really good point to distinguish. Um, I think that sometimes that's hard to understand too because they really should go together, right? Like, I don't understand, but lobby, law, law, law. Well, I mean, look, the founding fathers, oh, which I'm sure my uh, genealogy doesn't um, trace it. Anyway, anyway, we're not going there. Um, the founding fathers, I mean, they wanted to have something for checks and balances. And so mm -hmm. as far as I, I do believe in checks and balances, it sucks when it doesn't work out, I believe the right way. But yeah, they, they basically, um, when you, when you hear checks and balances, that's usually, um, in the branches of government, but mm -hmm. just the fact of having a house and a Senate is a check and balance within itself. And the Senate sure enough checked the house, honey, this week. So, <laughs> and that's that well, on I'm, that. <laughs> that's <laughs> and, that's, and that's that on that. Okay. <laughs> that's that on that. 
But I think that, like you said, it really is, it really should work. Um, they should work in tandem with each other and there should be some, some type of check and balance. Sometimes you have to break party lines. And, you know, I think one person was at least committed to doing that. Um, Mitt Romney, y'all. Hmm. Yeah, sis, like <laughs> Mitt Romney, what a lot of people will say, oh, he's bold. He is standing in his morals or this whole quote unquote, he is now officially a member of the resistance. Um, let's just <laughs> be honest <laughs> and take a look underneath the covering. Mm -hmm. Then Romney doesn't have anything to lose. Okay. And so <laughs> he very well, he very well could have morals or, you know, but I don't want us to get past the fact that he doesn't have anything to lose. He very well may hate Trump. But mm -hmm. this man is not up for re-election until 2024. And I think that's something the American public needs to know. Okay. Uh, he also, he has, uh, he comes from wealth. Okay. Um, for those <laughs> pay. We need to get money out of politics. But typically, unfortunately, the viability of your campaign is mostly predicated on how much money can you raise. Mm -hmm. And how much money do you have to run your campaign? Um, which, I, in my opinion, seems backwards because money, dollars don't vote, people do. Okay. So Some people are confused, um, which I've seen people who don't really raise that much money still win because they, they have a really good um, name that recognition and they're in the community and people know them. But um, I will say, at least my, ex ex um, my experience, typically you need to raise money so i said all that to say mitt Romney. he got his 15 seconds of, of fame voting to convict trump but let's not forget he ain't got nothing to lose <laughs> also, I think this is an important point it's just like just watch people's actions and what they do y'all like honestly i know a lot of people were also going off because nancy pelosi just ripped up the speech it was a viral speech but also, like, I'm more interested in, like, what she does with the trajectory of her positioning as Speaker of the House rather than memes that just go viral. Like, okay, y'all, we need to focus. Also, I just really want to point out the fact that Mitt Romney grew up in Bloomfield Hills in Detroit, which is a very affluent, wealthy neighborhood in Metro Detroit, mm -hmm. and he's not from Detroit, Michigan. I just had to say that as we were talking about the Romneys. That's <laughs> shout out to my Yeah, no, I think that's that's important. It's like we know all too well the wealth that comes with being in these neighborhoods and these suburbs and how that can position you from education mm -hmm. to career opportunities. Like he good, man. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that was the State of the Union. Um, let's get into this democracy. Okay, y'all, let's get into it. I really had to get on my soapbox this democracy about something that honestly is just so annoying to me. In this new age of Twitter and social media and this rise of just heightened politics that are for the world to see, I really want to start talking about the way in which we position ourselves to perform. That's right, performative politics. Listen, there's nothing wrong with not knowing what things are. I think that the hallmark of an intelligent person is really understanding that you don't know everything. And as we work towards a new future for us, a liberation, we really need to start talking about the ways in which we're actually taking the time to educate ourselves, but not only educate ourselves, but to really also learn from others, to be in community with people. You don't have to sit on your high horse because you know something, y'all. Share that information and be willing to listen to others. I really think that the way that we're gonna get free is always together. And so whether it be the new um, you know, impeachment trial or the new book on the market in the academic journal, like, Please just understand that 
it's not a competition. You don't have to perform for anyone. You don't have to show your intelligence in these ways. We really need to be working together to figure out what these systems are, what these systems do, and how can we decolonize and dismantle. That's my tea. Sis, look, I didn't say it. I have nothing else to say about that. Um, look, I can't even get my words out. job, <laughs> <laughs> y'all. Okay, well, thank you everyone for listening. This concludes our second episode. If you'd like to hear more, please feel free to reach us on social media as well as the website. And the feature will be dropping on Fridays. So be sure to look out also on SoundCloud. You know, if y'all just want to listen while y'all do the laundry or like go to work or something like that, you know. We, we trying to come in all the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> anything else you'd like to say, Deandrea, to close us out? I have no words. Um, please, if you did not un- understand anything that we said, or if you want to know more, please reach out to us. Um, this podcast was predicated on making sure that we get free, and we can't be hmm. free if we don't know what's going on. Yes. Um, our contact is on the website um also be sure to check out the reader's corner just for some materials to really flesh out what it is that we're talking about all right see y'all friday peace we know we know we got it 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 We got